a short Old Testament book. It fits into our time as we're trying to get through it before Advent season. Uh, realizing, though, it is densely packed with message and with material, though. And, and I just have to give you a warning. We're going to kind of fly through some stuff in the next couple of weeks that we could easily stop on and, uh, and camp out there for a while. But what's really, I find, intriguing about the book of Malachi is that he's really dealing with human nature. He's not really getting all that theological. He's just dealing with kind of how human beings relate to God or sometimes choose not to relate to God in the case of what he's dealing with. And so I find it a very accessible uh, Old Testament book. He's not talking about prophecies against other lands which no longer exist. He's talking about a relationship between the people of God and the living God. Well, years ago, before air travel, uh, most missionaries, if you're talking about like the 1800s, late 1700s, 1800s, most missionaries, when they would leave their homes, they would go by ship, and they would often never return home again, just because you didn't have the convenience of air travel. And I was just thinking about this this morning, how different, say, for example, my, uh, when I was a child, and some of you know I lived in Ghana in West Africa, and just how different it is to live in, in Ghana today as it was back then. You know, in the 70s, we didn't have a phone, we didn't have uh, TV, certainly didn't have computers. Internet had never even been invented, let alone even thought of. And, uh, and so it was, you know, these, there's this ancient form of communication, which maybe some of the folks who are in their 20s and less may not be aware of. It was called letter writing. And uh, we would write letters to one another, and sometimes those letters would take weeks to get back and forth. So back in the day when missionaries would go into uh, lands which were far away for them, they would often never return. They would never come back to their country of origin. And also, they would be very dependent on the people who had sent them, the, the mission organization that had sent them, uh, to take care of them. And I was reading, years ago, I was reading a diary, uh, excerpts from a diary that was written by a missionary, and I think she was in the, uh, kind of around Tahiti, those islands in that area there. And she was saying you know, that only about once a year would a ship come by. And sometimes on that ship, though, they would, there'd be barrels of materials that the, the missionaries could use, you know, simple things like paper and, and pens and ink, things like that that you just couldn't get on the islands. But also things like clothing and that sort of thing was in there. Maybe occasionally they were hopeful that maybe a toy or so for the, the uh, ch children. Oh, yeah, that's fine. I think Ava went and gave it, got us worked out. And so... Uh, but in the diaries, the, the women, it was mostly written by the women, the diaries I was reading, they were often disappointed in that people would send over clothing that was already worn out, uh, clothing that already had holes in it. People would send over books that the spines were broken, the pages were falling out, and sometimes they would even send over a, a, a toy or something for their children that was already broken. And they would write these things in the diaries because they could never say anything out loud. They didn't feel like they could complain. They didn't feel like they could say anything out loud because, you know, they knew that, the, they knew that when they joined up to, to go on this, you know, mission for God, that there was going to be sacrifice. But it was, it was written more than once, though, that they would wish that people didn't send anything at all than send these things which kind of showed that they really didn't care that much about them. 
And as they, again, as they would write these things, they would also kind of go through, very often they would kind of go through the, the answer in their own mind. They'd know that people would say, well, hey, maybe these, things don't have anything, maybe these folks don't have anything better to send. This might be a real sacrifice for them. And like sometimes one would say, and this may be true because it's been a long, long time since we've been back home. But you could tell they don't really believe this because they know this isn't true. And so they kept quiet and they confined their disappointments to the diary, thinking no one would ever read these. Well, today, as we continue through the book of Malachi, we looked last week at the attitude that people had toward God, which was sort of a, what have you done for me lately attitude. And the next attitude that Malachi deals with and addresses is this idea of honoring God. How do we honor God? Do we honor God? And the problem with the people at the time in Malachi's time is they were trying to honor God by doing as little as possible. So let's read the passage. It starts in Malachi chapter 1. Verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor? Do me. If I'm a master, where's the respect? Do me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You placed defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple's doors so that you would not light useless fires in my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying that the Lord's table, it is defiled. And of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, and diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it and then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Now, most of us have heard this little phrase here, give credit to whom credit is due. You know, it's that idea that we should be willing to acknowledge a person's legitimate claims to authority or respect. And when it comes to God, one of the questions that creation has been asking and has asked pretty much since the very beginning is, well, what does God do? What does his do? What does God have a right to, respect, to expect from us? And before you get into this idea where he says, well, he's talking to the priests here, so he's not talking to people like us. We'll go into it more next week, but there's this concept within Christianity called the priesthood of the believer. And so just remember this. We are priests in Christ. 
And if you're trying to kind of wiggle out of this idea by saying, well, I'm not a priest, this doesn't apply to me, then you have the very attitude that this passage is speaking against. Now, I've noticed over time that people approach the idea of what God is due in a variety of ways. Some resent it. Some resent the idea that God requires anything of them. They'll say things like, well, God is God. Why does he need anything of mine? And usually people get wound up in this way when they're talking about money. But God isn't just talking about money here. Sacrifice isn't just a sacrifice of money. It's also our time, our talent, as well as our resources. And so for the rest of this sermon, I'm just going to refer to money as part of our many resources. Because this isn't just about tithing or money. Now, he gets into the tithe, Malachi, later on, but we won't get there for several weeks. But this idea, why does God need anything of mine? If anything, God should give to me. If he's truly the God of the universe, why does he need anything from me? And then you have others that deal with it. It's a little less angry, but it's kind of a false humility. They'll say things like, oh, well, I'm sure little old me doesn't have anything that could really help out the kingdom of God. You know, I don't really have anything to offer. I'm just, I'm just a humble person with nothing to really give of myself. I'm sure there's, God can find better people. You oftentimes hear this people philosophizing their way out of things like service. You know, I can't help out in the church. I don't really know much. I'm sure there's better folks out there that can help. Then you have some that kind of almost make fun of God about the idea. You know, what, he can't function without my participation? Is this the kind of God we worship? Is he this weak that he needs me in order to bring forth his kingdom of God? Do I worship a weak God? And then you have those who kind of view God as almost like a, a mob boss extorting them. Saying things like, well, if I don't give to God, then he's going to take it from me. And if he takes it from me, he'll take more than what I was supposed to give. So I better give it to him or else he's going to come down hard on me as if God is kind of running some divine protection racket. But then there are those who delight in God. They delight in this amazing fact that the creator of the universe would actually seek to involve them in the kingdom of God. And this is really the main point of why we are called to be giving to God of our time, of our resources, of our energy, because he invites us to be part of his kingdom work. And he's done this from the beginning. You often hear me refer to all the way back to Genesis where Adam names the animals. And the point behind that is that Adam is involved in actually the creation at that point. Because in the Hebrew thought, when you gave someone a name, you also were giving them their character. We see this when names are changed in the Bible. A good example is when Simon has changed his name to Peter. Simon doesn't really have a, a deep meaning. Uh, you know, some say it means like a, a, a reed blowing in the wind. But Peter, we know, Peter means the rock. And when Jesus changes Simon's name from Simon to Peter... He's instilling in him the vision that he has for Peter's character. This happens all through the Bible. Abram gets changed the name to Abraham. Sarai gets changed the name to Sarah. It happens that Jacob gets changed to Israel. This happens all the time. We are invited to be part of the kingdom work. This is kind of the amazing thing about the church and God. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He invites us. And part of that being invited into it is to also participate, not just with our philosophy of our faith, but in everything that we have in our life, our time, 
our energy, our resources. So what was going on in the time of Malachi is that about 70 years or so after the Israelites had returned from exile, they'd been in Babylon for 70 years, they returned, they rebuilt the temple. But all that joy of the people returning and being able to rebuild the temple and to reestablish worship had gone. It just took about one generation and the people were already moaning and groaning and saying, what have you done for us lately? And they were already in the place. They had gone from the place of offering the best they had when that new temple was inaugurated to offering the least that they had. This generous outpouring of joy which had inaugurated the second temple had now dried up to a pathetic line of the lame and the blind and the diseased sacrifice. And so, this is what, gets, this is what Malachi, well, God is addressing through Malachi. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. I find the attitude that is the most glaring when I look at this passage and, and read it and kind of bring it into myself. How does this affect me? How does this reflect on my own life? Is that there's no humility in the people. You know, when you're a humble in a, in a healthy way, when you're a humble and you, part of what humility in a healthy way has is an ability to acknowledge and recognize authority that is rightfully in its place. Our societies now, at least the Western societies, don't like the idea of authority. And frankly, our authorities have abused the idea so much that there's good reason why people don't trust authority anymore. But in a righteous system with a healthy respect of humility, there is an understanding and a recognition of authority. And the people aren't recognizing the authority of God anymore. I found it interesting as I was preparing this that in Semitic culture, which is what the, the Hebrews come out of, that honor is expected before love. It's interesting, you know, the, the, the commandment uh, about parents is honor your mother and your father so that it will go well for you. It's not love them. It's honor them. Because I think sometimes love is, is, a, is a more complicated emotion. You know, love is like, you know, you kind of, you know, sometimes some of you have parents that, that are difficult to love. But honor is due no matter how we feel emotionally. There was this lady in our church when I was in Oregon, uh, and she, she had kind of a, a, an abusive background a little bit. And one day she, uh, she felt impressed by God that she should honor her parents. And she talked to me about it. And she says, what should I do? And to be honest with you, uh, my particular culture doesn't really understand honor in, in, as well as I think it's understood in, like, say, African cultures, uh, Indian culture. There's more of a concrete understanding of honor. And so we talked about it. And what she ended up doing is that she put together a bunch of pictures and she wrote this thing out to them telling their parents who were not nice to her. They were kind of abusive to her, uh, emotionally abusive to her, telling them what she was thankful for. And she went through everything she was thankful for. She made this little video presentation and gave it to her parents and sat through with them while they watched it. And I found that to be, 
in her attitude, like, that this, I need to do this. It was the first time I had ever heard of anyone doing something like this. And I found it, I don't want to say refreshing, but I found it challenging in a very positive way that she could set aside her, her hurt and still see the places to give honor. These folks are worshiping the almighty God. The God that took them, brought them back from exile. You say, well, God put them in exile. No, their sin put them into exile. God's grace brings them out. Reestablishes them. Again, as I mentioned many times, something that just doesn't happen normally in history. And yet they still were holding God in contempt. And yet when they're accused of this, in their lack of humility, the people don't accept God's accusation. Instead of just falling on their face and saying, forgive us, Lord, they are willfully blind. They choose to be blind. And they just pour out a bunch of self-justification, which again illustrates their lack of honor towards God. He says, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering those to your governor. Isn't it interesting that we'll often treat people, flesh and blood people, with more honor than we treat God? And I can understand it in a certain way because there's, you know, there's the idea, you know, we don't see God standing right in front of us. Let's go back one. Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. So he says, would he be pleased? Would he accept you? Now implore God to be gracious with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you? And then he says this interesting thing. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you. And I will accept no offering from your hands. It's interesting that this passage here, this, that last verse there, is very similar to a passage that's found in the book of Revelations. The book of Revelation, there's a church called the church in Laodicea. And God says of them, I wish that you were either hot or cold in your worship. I wish you were either hot or cold in your love for me, but you are lukewarm and I will spit you from my mouth. This is a common thing that you see in the scriptures. God's like, either be on board with me or not. But don't do this. I'm going to show up and do the bare minimum thing. God would rather you either not be on board or be fully on board with him. One or the other. This halfway thing, God's not interested in that. So why are we? And he says, he would rather the doors of the temple be closed instead of having this half-hearted worship. There's a quote which I read that says this, it is better to be speechless than to blaspheme. It is preferable to experience the agony of being far away from God than to deceive oneself by assuming that God will listen to the appeals of a hypocrite. There's a lot in that, that little quote there. See, God was fed up with this limp love that the Israelites were offering him, and he'd rather not have them worship him at all. If the best they could give to him was the leftovers of their life. And I've always found it personally a little bit frustrating and mind-numbing and soul-searing, and I include myself in this, that, yeah, we will treat God worse than we would treat anyone else that is due our honor. A person who's never late to work will neglect worship or be late to church obligations. A person who takes on extra work 
and text her hours of work for more money will then moan and groan about time having to be given to God. A person who will devote hours to hobbies will not have enough time for fellowship or to worship or to become a disciple or to minister in the name of God. And it's no wonder that there's a lot of folks who claim to be Christians who kind of wander through their faith without purpose. Because we don't really apply ourselves to a purpose. I had a professor one time. He said that the, the church is the, most, is the largest and yet most impotent institution in the entire world. Because he says over a billion people claim to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. Now that includes Catholics, as well as your Protestants. He didn't include the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, but those that understand who Jesus is. And then he, then he threw this question out to us as, pastor, as young pastor wannabes. Do you see in the world the effect of a billion people sold out for Christ? Do we? A billion people sold out for Jesus Christ, following his kingdom principles. Do we see that? What we see is we see a lot of division. We see a lot of fighting. We see people that, that the, the churches themselves very often are embroiled in sin, and that includes the leadership. We have wars going on where one side of the war says God is with us, and we're part of this orthodox belief. And on the other side of the same orthodox basic belief is no, God's on our side. Is it any wonder and if the world looks at the church and goes, why should I be a part of this? But, and this is an important thing to remember, if people are, who are the favored of God get tired of God, if people who are favored by the Lord kind of get tired of the Lord, the Lord will go somewhere else. You'll find a different people. And you see this happen throughout history. He says this, if my name, my name will be great among the nations. So this is where he's just reminding us, I don't really need you. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. And every place incense and pure offerings will be brought in my name because my name will be great among the nations. And this is a warning from the Lord. You see, in the time of Malachi, the people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, could not conceive of the idea of God taking his honor and his glory to another people. They were the chosen people. There's no other chosen. There's only one chosen people. And the idea that God would take his glory, take his power, take his blessings from one people to a different people was not on their radar. They figured, well, we can be abusive towards God all we want because he's not going to go anywhere else. Where's God going to go? And what we see happening through Jesus Christ is when the church is opened up, when faith and hope is opened up, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. Where does the church then begin to grow the most powerfully and the most explosively? It grows among the Gentiles. But before we get all happy and proud of ourselves, as most of us don't come from a Jewish background, you can look at almost every movement of God and movements which started out with passion and with power and with zeal. People willing to sacrifice and give of themselves. In a few generations, most of those movements begin to cool off. And what you have is people who are wanting to hang on to what they've managed to get during those glory years. And 
the blessing of God just kind of moves off those folks and goes into another passionate group of people. And we see this. You know, we see it in different denominations. For example, in the late 1700s, the Methodists. The Methodists were formed from John Wesley, deeply devoted, almost lunatic fringe, what you would kind of consider. They had these circuit riders that would just ride and ride and ride and go to different churches. They were known for being very evangelistic, very powerful. And then, they got, then over the years, you know, the kind of the social gospel creeps in. They become more about just being nice people than being gospel people. And the Methodists have kind of dropped off in their impact on the kingdom of God. Baptists, we can say the same thing. Baptists started out as this very passionate movement that came out of the Church of England. Well, it came out as a result of the abuses of the Church of England. Very passionate. Wanted to go to the new world, kind of create this utopia. Be part of this kingdom work. Very passionate. And then kind of started... Started be, they went from being sort of a downtrodden people to in the southern part of the U.S. being the dominant people. And they went from being a people that were passionate and willing to take their lumps, take the, the, the pain in order to share the gospel, to being a people of saying, well, hey, now there's a lot of power and influence we have down here in the south. Let's start moving that power in political directions. And they moved away from that passion. It happens all the time. Then it went to the Pentecostals. There's this Azusa Street Revival that took place, I think it was around 1917, in, uh, in L.A. And the Pentecostals kind of went through this phase of being like super passionate. We would even kind of consider them almost the lunatic fringe out there, you know, willing to do anything and kind of do the crazy things in order to advance the gospel. And then they got all caught up in the whole health and wealth gospel. And they got caught up in all the craziness of the televangelism. And the power of God has been moving somewhere else. And you look at the continents too. Europe used to be the place where, you know, it was happening. Especially during the, the, uh, the Reformation. And then Europe kind of cooled down and moved over to the United States. The United States was happening. Kind of cooled down. I would say now you see most of the, the passionate work of God taking place in the continent of Africa and parts of Asia. And right now that's where the passion is at. That's where the church is actually growing quite quickly. But God's, God doesn't just kind of hang around and look at a bunch of people that don't really care to be involved with him and say, oh man, come on, come be a part. He does that for a little bit. Then he moves on. Because he knows that there are people out there who have a passionate heart for him and a willingness to follow him. So he says, you profane my table by saying of the Lord's table, it's defiled. And of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. God is just a burden. Just too demanding of me. I mean, yeah, he died for our sins. Brings about the possibility of eternal life, but tithing? What a burden. Time? What a burden. It's important to remember that God does not seek his due because he needs us. He's not some pathetic, weak God that needs us. He doesn't demand our honor because he's insecure. I've heard people say that, atheists. What kind of God do you worship that is so insecure that he demands his worship? It's not what it's about. God knows 
that we are impacted by sin. And sin's not, this whole thing, the fall of man and all that wasn't a mistake. This is part of the plan of God. Because Jesus was chosen to be our Messiah, the scripture says, from before time. So none of this is a big mistake or surprise to God. But we are going through a development process as a species, as human beings. And God knows that if we are going to develop out of the evil and out of not being naive and be able to join him in the next chapter, whatever his kingdom work is. Because the scripture, when it ends in the book of Revelation, there's the new heaven, the new earth, and we just kind of end at the beginning. We don't really know what goes on after that, except we know there's something else that goes on after that, but not everyone gets to be a part of that. Those who follow Christ are a part of that. He doesn't need us because he's some pathetic, weak creature, insecure, but he knows that if we are going to develop into the people that we want to be and he wants us to be, then like a plant that will twist and turn in order to get out of darkness and then face the light, we have to turn and focus on him. And that means we need to focus on him with every aspect of our life. Not just the Sunday morning aspect or the Wednesday aspect, when, if you have a home group or a Bible study, with every aspect. And so as we examine our lives before the Lord today, and as we seek that heart of worship that we present to God, even though we are going to fail in this, just like we fail in every big resolution we make towards God because we are what we are, may we be resolved to try and give God our best. The best. The best of our time. The best in our worship. The best in our resources. The best in our devotion. The best in our energies. Not the leftovers. And if you are looking at your life and you realize as a believer, sometimes you go through and you become somewhat disappointed, like the people in Malachi's time, disappointed. That disappointment can often lead to cynicism. And I'm guilty of this. I get cynical sometimes. But there is no place for this in our relationship with God. God came to us very open-handed. God came to us without any alternate uh, agenda and just said, I love you. I'm going to open the way for you. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Pretty clear. And that's exactly what he did so that we can have hope. Hope eternal. Now, I warned you, Malachi, Malachi is, a, is a tough book. And I want you to know that I'm not preaching this because I have like a deep personal pastoral disappointment with the folks of IBCD. I don't. I think IBCD is a, a great church. It's wonderful to be a part of. But IBCD has the human element in it, just like any other church. And part of that human element that, that brings up every now and then is the place of, well, where are we really devoted? Are we devoted to the kingdom's work? Do we believe that our life is leading to something greater, or are we just kind of muddling through this, and we hope that the whole Jesus thing makes this life easier? Or better somehow. We're called to a bigger vision than that. We're called to a bigger vision than just trying to muddle through. We're called to being part of the eternal kingdom of God. And that is an awesome thing. He is our king. May we give our king the very best. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for guys like Malachi. Prophets that, boy, I don't know if I'd want to sit down and have a cup of coffee with this guy. But he speaks truth. 
I know he speaks truth because he speaks to my own life. And if for no other, no other person in the room that this is meant for is, is me, then I can still say he's speaking truth. Because I can see myself in here, and I think most of us can see ourselves a little bit in these places. Maybe not everywhere, but we have our moments. And Father, we want to lift up to you this church, this church that is made up of people that uh, come from all kinds of different backgrounds. And I pray that you would help us to continue to be focused on you and what your desires are for us to reach the nations with the gospel and for us to grow as disciples and to make disciples. And we have this situation that you've given us where the world comes to us. You've given us an amazing situation where we have children. You've given us the right and the privilege to form the next generation of faith. And it's going to be tougher. Those kids are going to have a tougher time than my generation, my parents, my grandparents' generation. We need to prepare them. And we thank you that you've trusted us enough to bring children into our congregation. Lord, we thank you that we do have this place to worship. You've given us this resource. Help us to be generous and open-handed with it. And Lord, we pray that as a church, we would be willing to do soul-searching, not just once a year or every now and then, but may we all be willing to do soul-searchings as individuals and as the corporate body of Christ that is this particular church, IBCD. And seek out our uh, motivations in our worship, in our giving, in the resources that we use and how we use them that you would be glorified. Thank you for your straightforward uh, reminders in your word that you are a mighty God and you deserve our honor and our praise. In Jesus' name, we thank you and we praise you. Amen.